0: Hi everyone, and welcome to our weekly podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. Today, we will be covering our highlights from ASCO GU 2024, which we covered live in San Francisco, California. We will be covering a range of exciting research topics from highly anticipated trial updates and unique perspectives in bladder and prostate cancers. To begin, we have Andrea Polo from the National Institutes of Health who presents findings from the ambassador trial of adjuvant pembrolizumab in muscle-invasive urethelial carcinoma.
1: Yeah, so this year at GUASCO 2024, we have a late-breaking abstract on the adjuvant uh, ambassador study of adjuvant pembrolizumab versus observation in patients with muscle-invasive urethelial carcinoma. The Alliance Ambassador Study is a multi-center study, phase three trial, open label, where uh, adjuvant pembrolizumab for one year is given to patients um, with muscle-invasive urethral carcinoma versus observation. The key eligibility included patients that had muscle-invasive urethral carcinoma, and this can be bladder, urethra, renal pelvis, um, or upper tract, and um, the patients could have received neoadjuvant chemotherapy. If they did, they had to be PT2 or greater, uh, lymph node positive disease, uh, or have positive margins, or they could have been cisplatinum ineligible. Uh, in that case, uh, they should have been uh, PT3, uh, or greater uh, positive margins, uh, and or uh, positive uh, lymph nodes. Uh, the patient must have had radical surgery uh, within four to 16 weeks of enrollment in to the trial. The study um, uh, stratified patients based on PDL1 status, uh, whether they received neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and their pathologic stage. And it was a dual primary endpoint of disease free survival and overall survival. And key secondary endpoints included PDL1 status and uh, DFS and OS. So the the study was positive uh, for um, one of the dual primary endpoints, and the way that the study was designed is if it's positive for one uh, endpoint, one primary endpoint, the study is overall positive. Uh, and, um, uh, adjuvant pembrolizumab improved disease-free survival versus observation with a uh, median disease-free survival of 29 months versus 14 months for the patients in the observation arm and this was regardless of PD-L1 status with a hazard ratio of 0.69 and a median follow-up of 22 months. We also looked uh, at overall survival and this was an interim analysis of the overall survival and it did not meet uh, the, the pre specified cutoff for uh, improvement in overall survival, but this was um, immature. The data is still maturing uh, for final analysis. We see that Adjuvant pembrolizumab is very active, um, and uh, it, it's a treatment option for our patients now with muscle-invasive urothelial carcinoma in the adjuvant setting that are at high risk. So I, I think that um, uh, these findings are very exciting um, and offering a new treatment option for our patients in this setting.
0: Next up, we have Kim Chi from the BC Cancer Vancouver Centre. Provides an overview of the phase 3 CONTACT 2 trial of cabozantinib, nivolumab, in patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer.
2: The CONTACT2 study is a randomized phase three trial that was presented by Dr. Agarwal, and it's the first analysis of the study. It looked at a combination of cas- cabozantinib plus atezolizumab versus an ARPI switch in patients that had progressed after an AR pathway inhibitor. The main finding was that the radiographic progression-free survival was improved for the cabozantinib in atezolizumab arm. The median radiographic progression-free survival was 6.3 months versus about 4.2 months in the patients that had ARPI switch. So it is a positive study, but there are a number of limitations of the study that I think we need to consider before we would actually try to recommend this kind of therapy. Number one, the radiographic progression-free survival duration of benefit is actually pretty modest. It was only two months. And on the study, scans were being done roughly every two months. So really that means the change was from one scan to the next. So that's of arguable clinical significance. Um, As well, there was no other benefits. Overall survival wasn't improved and patient reported outcomes like time to pain deterioration or quality of life deterioration weren't improved either. The other issue is the control arm. These are patients that had measurable disease and visceral metastases, and typically we recommend chemotherapy to these patients. And in other trials, chemotherapy has a median radiographic progression free survival of eight to nine months. So really the standard of care was not tested in the control arm. So at this point in time, uh, along with the toxicity of the regimen, which was not easy, 40 to 60% of patients needed a dose hold or reduction. Uh, or um, a delay in their therapy. So really at this time, I would not be able to recommend this treatment as a standard of care.
0: Following on with Victor Grunwald from University Hospital Essen in Germany, who discusses findings from the phase three clear trial of Levantinib and Pembrolizumab in patients with advanced renal cell carcinoma.
3: Clear Study uh, is one of the trials that set a new standard of care um, in uh, kidney cancer in first-line treatment of kidney cancer. So the Clear Study investigated the use of lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab and compared it to sunitinib, which uh, at the time being it has been a standard of care. So what it really showed is that um, lenpem has been superior in terms of response, progression-free survival, and uh, overall survival when compared to sunitinib single-agent therapy. So the question that we had is really, um yeah, more clinically driven. So um, when you have a specific patient sitting in front of you, you know those patients could have a high or low tumor burden um, at the beginning of their um, uh, start of therapy, and we kind of questioned questioned ourselves, you know, how does it impact the outcome? You know, is there um, what to expect um, in in these kind of scenarios? So for that purpose, we came up with uh, four quartiles. Um, so we used the tumor burden at start at the baseline assessment um, as the starting point and we um, built up those four quartiles and uh, group patients. And then we looked into the outcome parameters, which is response, it's progression-free survival and overall survival. What we have seen for lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab, that uh, basically um, the efficacy has been maintained, so we see similar responses, we've we seen a similar progression-free survival across those four different groups. And um, we, we haven't seen major deviations in terms of um, overall survival, uh, but they were numerically different. Uh, so higher, higher tumor burden had... Uh, had a lower um, survival expectancy um, than those that had a lower tumor burden. Um, and I think that needs to be further explored. So overall, I think uh, LENPAM performed irrespective of the tumor load, basically. Um, but there are some um, items that I think need to be followed and, and um, better underst- understood.
0: Next up. We have Joseph Jacob from Upstate Medical University, who comments on why BCG unresponsive patients with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer refused radical cystectomy in the
4: SunRISE-1 trial. So the SunRISE-1 trial uh, is looking at BCG unresponsive patients. So these are heavily pretreated patients. And classically, this has been a very difficult um, population to treat. Uh, Not only uh, do they have issues with response rates, we just haven't had very many options to give these patients. And the standard of care, um, unfortunately, has been radical cystectomy. Um, Most urologists and most patients believe that you know radical cystectomy may be a little bit too aggressive in this patient population. So as a community we've been looking for salvage therapy. So this is a drug that is trying to salvage patients that have uh, you know have become unresponsive uh, to BCG. So the the interesting thing about this trial is it's a um, it's a device trial as well. So it's a it's a novel device. It's a silicone device that is deployed into the bladder by a urologist. And it looks like a pretzel, and it floats in the in, in the bladder in the urine, um, and it and it, um, is a, the the pretzel device um, has like sustained release gemcitabine tablets, and is able to deliver a, uh, a durable dose of gemcitabine uh, to to the tumor. Uh, so the, the trial uh, originally was a three-arm trial. To make a long story short, they got rid of the um, immunotherapy combination arms. And so what we're talking about today is an uh, intravesical therapy alone arm. And so these are patients that only received the what's called the TAR200 device, the intravesical uh, gemcitabine uh, sustained release device. And patients had a so far, phenomenal response. So the primary endpoint was complete response rate, and the complete response rate is around 80%, which is, you know, we haven't seen numbers like that uh, in the past, so everyone's excited about the data.
0: Finally, we have Jim Hu from Vial Cornell Medicine in New York, who discussed the results from the trial that compared transperineal biopsy without antibiotic prophylaxis
5: to transrectal biopsy for prostate cancer detection. So, really, this is the first multi center randomized control trial to examine this important question. Uh, and, you know, I should contextualize by saying about 2 million men in Western Europe as well as the US undergo a prostate biopsy on an annual basis. And so, one of the most devastating complications, of course, is an infection. And so, the the reason we undertook this study is just to see whether. We could find a newer and potentially better way of doing a biopsy. That is the transperineal approach, as compared to the traditional transrectal approach. And one one important caveat is that because the transperineal approach is performed with a needle going through the skin, similar to say like a blood draw or putting in an IV, then you know the thought was maybe you don't need antibiotics as well, you know, at all, right, to prevent infection. Whereas the traditional transrectal biopsy, one um, gives antibiotics before the biopsy. And so, what we found, basically, in conducting the study, was that, you know, out of about 287 men who had the the uh, transperineal biopsy, we did not find any man had an infection. And uh, of the the 280 men that had a transrectal biopsy, um, a, a lower than expected number experienced an infection, like four out of those 280, or about 1.4 uh, percent experienced an infection. And so, and part of the reason why that rate is lower than uh, what the systematic reviews or the review papers have contextualized, which is traditionally five to seven percent, is that the type of uh, preventative antibiotics we gave for the transrectal approach was where we did what's called targeted prophylaxis. We did a, a a rectal culture swab before the biopsy to see what if there were resistant bacteria in the rectum. And if there were, uh, we changed the antibiotic uh, that they got. So, so you know, that's a more um, rigorous way of doing the preventative antibiotics, and it's also concordant to what, what we what we term antibiotic stewardship. That is, you know, if you prescribe multiple antibiotics, which a lot of people do prior to transrectal biopsy, that could actually worsen your your resistance rates uh, and and make the problem worse in the long run, and so. So, um, aside from the key finding that is um, no infections versus a one point four percent risk of infections, and I should note that 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 was not different statist- statistically, meaning the p value was zero point zero five nine, um, and uh, and so aside from that comparison, we also looked at did the cancer detection differ, right? Like, if, if for example, if you did a newer approach to biopsy although it could be the same or lower infection rate, but yet your likelihood of finding cancer is lower, then it's obviously not as good an approach. And what we found was the cancer detection rate in the transperineal arm was 53%. The uh, cancer detection rate in the transrectal arm was 50%. And this is detection of what we call clinically significant cancer. And that also was not significantly different. Finally, we also compared tolerability, or you know, is the transperineal biopsy uh, more painful, or just the same as transrectal biopsy, and so we asked men right right after completion of the biopsy to rate their pain and discomfort on a zero to ten scale. And what we found was that, on average, men undergoing transperineal biopsy rated the pain as three point six, uh, transrectal they rated rate as 3.0. Uh, and uh, that's a statistically statistically significant difference, but clinical significance is thought to be a difference of about 1.6 or higher, and that difference in pain also resolved by one week after biopsy when we reassessed. And so, so in summary, we found that um, the infection risk of transperineal biopsies was zero percent without the need for antibiotics. The infection risk for transrectal biopsies was 1.4 percent with the use of targeted prophylaxis. There, there was no difference statistically, and there was no difference statistically in the detection rate of cancer. Uh, However, it appeared that the transperineal approach had a higher pain score, 3.6 versus 3.0 for the transrectal approach.
0: Thank you to our speakers and to you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple, Podbean, and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at vjoncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.